PG&E debtors disclose constructive negotiations on plan of reorganization. Alta Mesa debtors designate BCE Mach 3 as successful bidder. Pharma names comment at JPM conference. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm distressed debt analyst Andrew Sung. And I'm legal analyst Alex Brosman. Later this episode, the First Day team will review trends in 2019 Chapter 11 filings. It's Sunday, January 19th. The PG&E debtors asked Judge Montali for a one-week adjournment until Jan- January 21st of the oral argument on the make-hold dispute and of the scheduled plan status conference, saying that relevant parties are engaged in, quote, constructive negotiations. After the hearing on Tuesday, PG&E told Reorg that discussions with stakeholders regarding its plan of reorganization were ongoing, with the debtors hoping to, quote, make progress over the next week. In connection with these developments, Administrative Law Judge Peter Allen granted, in part, PG&E's motion to delay various dates in the CPUC proceeding regarding PG&E's plan of reorganization, according to an email ruling. PG&E argued in its motion that, among other things, a delay was reasonable because, quote, financing of the PG&E plan likely would materially change if there is a settlement between PG&E and the ad hoc committee. Agreeing that a delay was, quote, reasonable, Judge Allen nonetheless decided that the debtor's proposed schedule would, quote, hinder the commission's ability to achieve a timely resolution and instead provided his own modified schedule. Elsewhere, the Unsecured Creditors Committee, or UCC, filed a response to the debtors and ad hoc subrogation groups joint brief on whether subrogation claims are impaired under the debtor's plan. The committee maintains that the claims are unimpaired, because the court-approved subrogation RSA, and not the plan itself, allows the subrogation claims and provides for their treatments according to the filing. In contrast to the debtors and ad hoc groups' assertion that, quote, there can be no serious dispute as to their impairment, the filing argues that the plan, quote, merely affords the subrogation claimants the very bundle of rights they bargain for under the subro RSA. In the district court, Judge William Alsup entered an order to show cause in the PG&E federal criminal proceeding, stating that the company, quote, admits that it is not in full compliance, end quote, with probation uh, conditions relating to vegetation management and a wildfire mitigation plan. The order directs PG&E to show cause, quote, why a further condition of probation should not be imposed requiring PG&E to hire and train as part of its own workforce, sufficient crews, and equipment to inspect and to trim and remove all vegetation, end quote, so as to comply with these conditions. On Thursday evening, the Alta Mesa debtors filed a notice designating proposed stalking horse BCE Mach 3 as a success- successful bidder for the Alta Mesa and Kingfisher assets and the ad hoc group of Alta Mesa note holders as the backup bidder. According to a transcript of the auction, Caroline Reckler of Latham & Watkins, counsel to the Alta Mesa and SR2 debtors, announced that the debtors had received two qualified bids, both of which were for $310 million, one from BCE Mock and the other from the ad hoc group of Altamesa note holders. As the auction proceeded, Damien Scheibel of Davis Polk, counsel to the ad hoc group, said that the group was adjusting its starting bid to $327.9 million in cash. 
Notwithstanding the ad hoc group's proposed bid increase, the debtors announced in a filing that night that BCE Mock was selected as the winning bidder and the ad hoc group was the backup bidder. The ad hoc group previously disclosed to the court that its bid entering the auction was not firm in light of certain, quote, compliance issues. The ad hoc group assured the court, however, that these issues would be resolved by the time of the auction. According to an objection filed by BOKF, at least one party, Great Salt Plains Midstream, previously submitted a non-binding bid of, quote, $150 to $210 million for just the Kingfisher assets, suggesting that the proposed purchase price for the Kingfisher assets was largely undervalued. The auction followed the Chapter 11 filing on Monday by Kingfisher Midstream, the midstream arm of Altamesa Resources. Kingfisher's Chapter 11 was filed with the goal of effectuating a joint asset sale with the Altamesa debtors. At the first day hearing, which was on January 14th, Judge Marvin Isker informed the parties that the Kingfisher cases, as well as those of two other affiliates, would be administered jointly with those of, Alt- of Altamesa. He also granted the debtors requested relief. The judge also approved Kingfisher's revised bidding procedures, which removed bid protections previously afforded to BC Mock. Teva, Mallinckrodt, and Amneal presented this week at this week's J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, and Reorg provided coverage of management comments on various topics, including the ongoing opioid litigation, debt reduction, and the prescription drugs market. On the opioid litigation, management for both Teva and Mallinckrodt pointed to the upcoming March trial start date in the New York State Court opioid action as an important guideline for broader settlement discussions. Teva described the, the trial as a, quote, deadline, stating it would be, quote, advantageous for everybody to reach a settlement before that trial proceeded, while Mallinckrodt stated that, due to its size, the case could serve as a, quote, catalyst to a global settlement. Amneal did not discuss, nor was it asked about, its own issues related, relating to opioid litigation, while Endo only discussed its recent settlements in the public markets. Mallinckrodt CFO Brian Reasons suggested that its specialty generics business could be separated as part of a global settlement due to, quote, special circumstances surrounding its legal structure. On debt reduction, on general debt reduction, Teva CEO Carrie Schultz stated that pharmaceutical companies should remain within two times net leverage compared to above five times currently for the company, adding that he expects to continue paying down debt using free cash flow. Amneal CEO Shirag Patel said the company's long-term leverage target is four times to four and a half times net as compared to approximately 5.2 times as of September 30. Patel did not comment on specific initiatives, but reiterated the company's goal to increase gross margins through a combination of new launches, existing portfolio optimization, and self-help initiatives. Uh, Mallinckrodt CFO Brian Reasons discussed Mallinckrodt's $615 million April 2020 notes maturity, describing its recent up-tier exchange into secondly notes addressing some of those unsecured notes as, quote, successful, and guiding that the company could, quote, pay the, could pay them off, but was considering a range of options. On the drug market, Amneal Management remarked on two of Amneal's recent generics launches, NuvaRing and Carafate, saying that the company is targeting a 25 to 30% market share for each. Uh, CEO Shirag Patel also stated that the generics environment remains highly competitive, but is significantly better than it was in 2019. 
And on Mallinckrodt, CEO Mark Trudeau addressed his company's complaint against CMS in respect in response to its drug rebate program with respect with respect to the company's HP Actar gel product, stating that he expects a resolution sometime in 2020. The company has a, quote, range of options to deal with any outcome, he added. And on the island of Puerto Rico, the Supreme Court on Monday denied two petitions for certiorari arising out of appeals in Puerto Rico's Title III cases. Both cert petitions had asked the court to consider the issue of whether Section 922D of the Bankruptcy Code, quote, mandates that there is no automatic stay of debt enforcement actions with respect to special revenues. In addition, one of the petitions asked the court to consider whether Section 904 of the Bankruptcy Code and Section 305 of PROMESA, quote, prohibit a bankruptcy court from enforcing the provisions of the Bankruptcy Code against municipal debtors. The Supreme Court's order did not provide the basis for the court's denial. One of the petitions was filed by Assured Guarantee and National Public Finance Guarantee Corps in connection with the First Circuit's March 2019 ruling regarding the special revenue provisions under Chapter 9 of the Bankruptcy Code. The other was filed by AMBAC in connection with the First Circuit's June 2019 opinion that addresses, among other things, Section 305 of PROMESA, as well as the same special revenue provisions addressed in the Assured National Appeal. The cert petitions were opposed by the PROMESA Oversight Board, both on its own behalf and as the representative for the Commonwealth and the Puerto Rico Highways and Transportation Authority, or HTA, and AFAF. The First Circuit's conclusions regarding Section 922D and 928 of the Bankruptcy Code were notable because of their potential impact on payments related to special revenue bonds in other Puerto Rico Title III cases, as well as potentially in the larger context of Chapter 9 cases. Similarly, the Supreme Court's denial of cert in connection with each petition is also significant because it represents the exhaustion of the petitioner's appellate remedies in connection with the relevant rulings. In statements issued following the ruling, the PROMESA Oversight Board welcomed the denial of cert, while National expressed its disappointment with the decision, warning of the, quote, serious ramifications for the entire municipal market. The administration of President Donald Trump took steps this week to release more than $16 billion in U.S. House and Urban Development Community Development Block Grant Disaster Relief Funding, but imposed new requirements on the released money. The requirements include having the PROMESA Oversight Board approve spending plans for the funds and oversee their distribution, in addition to barring the use of funds for the electric grid. These requirements come on top of the appointment of a federal monitor, former HUD General Counsel Robert Couch, to oversee that funding. Additionally, HUD is publishing guidelines on a third $8.2 billion tranche of funding for mitigation projects this week, according to Resident Commissioner Jennifer Gonzalez. More than $20 billion in the CDBG-DR funding has been approved for Puerto Rico, but HUD has only released an initial $1.5 billion before this week. In a press release issued Wednesday, Gonzalez also said an additional $1 billion of the second tranche of funding has been released. On Thursday, Trump signed a major disaster declaration that supplements local recovery efforts in the areas affected by a series of earthquakes that have jolted the island since December 28, 2019. The action makes federal funding available to affected individuals in six municipalities and to the Commonwealth, eligible local governments, and certain private nonprofit organizations on a cost-sharing basis for emergency work. The U.S. House Appropriations Committee, meanwhile, 
announced Thursday the introduction of a supplemental spending bill that would provide Puerto Rico with an additional $3.35 billion in disaster relief related to damage from the recent and ongoing earthquakes and seismic activity. The bill allows for commingling of funds with previous emergency supplements and requires the HUD secretary to complete consultation with other federal agencies on nearly $2 billion in electric grid funding for Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands within 30 days and to issue a federal register notice within 60 days. And heading back to the courts, on Thursday, the Oversight Board filed four adversary complaints challenging the claims and liens asserted against the Commonwealth by holders of Puerto Rico Highway and Transportation Authority, or HTA bonds, Puerto Rico Infrastructure Financing Authority, or PRIFA bonds, and Puerto Rico Convention Center District Authority, or CCDA bonds. The Oversight Board and the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors also filed an adversary complaint challenging the claims and liens asserted against HTA by holders of ins- or insurers of HTA bonds. The challenges to the so-called revenue bonds were previewed at the December 11th omnibus hearing in conjunction with the respective defendants' concurrent filings of motions to lift the automatic stay to enforce their rights and interests in the bonds. Other top stories this week were detailed Mallinckrodt org chart indicates secured debt, subsidiary guaranteed unsecured notes may have structurally senior claim relative to opioid potential opioid claimants with respect to specialty brand segment assets. GTT Communications working with TRS, Aiken Gump to evaluate balance sheet options. McDermott enters amended credit agreement as forbearance expires. Notes acceleration does not constitute default through January 21st. And now over to Reorg's favorite Texan, Jim Holloway with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Alex, and welcome one and all to the most interesting half hour in the universe of digital broadcasting. I hope you all up there in the northern states are keeping warm and comfy. It's a brutal 46 degrees here on the Gulf Coast, and this is a time of the year when everybody starts looking forward to crawfish season, which tends to start around late January or early February. Now, there is a legend that the humble mud bug is descended from the lobsters that the French pioneers used to catch off the coast of what's now the Canadian Maritimes, and the little critters followed the Acadia some of my people made that journey too, down to Louisiana. The crawfish is far tastier than the lobster, of course, just as southern cuisine tends to have flavor that can be a challenge to find in that of our northern neighbors. I remember the one time I was in Boston, I hit a hash joint, asked the lady to bring me the best thing on the menu. About 10 minutes later, she slammed down a plate covered with the oozing chaos that looked like a monster out of H.P. Lovecraft, who's a native of Providence just down the road. It's a baked bean and brown bread sandwich, she announced proudly. It's the pride of Boston. Needless to say, after a polite interval, I left a $10 bill on the table and left with my appetite not satisfied. Still ain't sure whether she was putting me on or not with that. Anyways, good news and bad news this week. Good news is that Monday's a holiday. Bad news is that Tuesday and the rest of the week is not. So there is a lot, mostly of the legal variety, going on. Let's kick it off with Tuesday, January the 21st. McDermott International is to expiration of the notes acceleration grace period. Under the credit agreement, omnibus hearings in Dean Foods and Destination Maternity, earnings from Netflix after the close with a call at 6 p.m. Wednesday, January 22nd, early deadline for Superior Energy's note exchange number of omnibuses, including Holland Capital, High Ridge, and Weinstein. 
Thursday, January 23rd, second day in potential sale hearing in Borden, auction in Bumblebee, and omnibus hearings in Purdue and White Star. And of course, we can't let a week go by without some news from the land of tomorrow, the land of sunshine and opportunity, California, where there is a make-whole plan status and Tubbs settlement hearing in, yes, PG&E. And Friday, January 24th, stay relief hearing in EP and another omnibus hearing in Highland Capital. And also Saturday, January 25th, Iconics has a coupon due on its secured notes. There's a whole lot more. Please see our weekly calendar released early on the first business day of the week. And that's all from me. Bye, y'all. Okay, and now as promised, here's the first day team to share their insights. Today, the team at Reorg First Day, Jessica Steinhagen and Ian Howland. Join us to talk about Chapter 11 filing activity in 2019. Reorg First Day monitors Chapter 11 filings across the country with more than $10 million in liabilities. Jessica and Ian also track trends in filings through the First Day database. This week, they publish their annual Year in Review story, which gives readers a bird's eye view of the volume and characteristics of Chapter 11 filings in 2019. The report also delves into a sector-by-sector -sector analysis of the last year's Chapter 11 debtors. Ian, let's turn it over to you first. Could you tell us about what you saw during 2019 in broad strokes in terms of the number of Chapter 11 cases and the types of companies that filed? 2019 ended with an even 400 cases, which was a 21% jump from 2018 at just over 330. On a daily basis, 2019's cases averaged 1.1 per day after the three prior years averaged less than one per day. The increase was largely due to a significant increase in healthcare cases with a particular spike in pharmaceutical companies filing. Energy was also up significantly this year compared with 2017 and 2018, but did not quite reach its 2016 level, which remains the busiest year for energy filings since first day started. Following up on what Ian said, um, some of the biggest trends we saw were increased bankruptcy activity in the transportation industry, and in particular, trucking companies. There were also several oil and gas companies and retail chapter 22 or companies filing for a second time within two years of the prior filing. Certain companies also blamed President Donald Trump's tariffs for their bankruptcies. We also saw an increase in real estate. So a very busy year for the first day team. You mentioned in the report that with 400 Chapter 11 cases filed, 2019 was the busiest year for bankruptcy coverage overall since first day began in 2015. From a high level, one of the themes last year in the First Day Team's coverage was the continued filings of retail chains, right? That's true. But what we also saw were smaller chains with respect to debt this year, as compared to 2018 and 2017. In 2018, for example, there were 21 retail chain filings, including big names like Sears, Claire's, and Bonton, representing an aggregate total of nearly $25 billion in liabilities. In 2019, there were 25 retail chain filings, with popular brands such as Payless, which also filed in 2017, Forever 21, and Barney's New York. But the aggregate debt volume of these 25 cases was less than $5 billion overall. Like in prior years, chains made up the bulk of retail filings in 2019, but there was an increase in filings from companies that distribute to retailers, as well as retailers that only sell their goods online. In fact, 2019 was the first year of our coverage to include a retail filing with over $1 billion in liabilities from an online-only retailer, which was full beauty. So it seems like troubles in the retail industry in 2019 were farther reaching across the broader industry. That seems to be exactly right, Karen. To that point, 
there were Chapter 11 filings by companies that provide support services to retailers, including Acosta, which assists retailers and retail chains with marketing and sales services, and Fleetwood Acquisition, which provides customized fixtures and displays for retail stores. Acosta blamed changes in consumer behavior and industry headwinds facing consumer packaged goods manufacturers and retailers as a whole and consolidation of these companies' marketing spending. Fleetwood also put the blame on retail industry headwinds. Of all the retail cases filed last year, support service providers made up 5%. 63% were stores, including chains and online dealers, and 32% were distributors. Uh, going back to Jessica, you also said in the annual review that there were some bankruptcy cases last year in the so-called new economy. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, sure, Karen. Well, we noticed that when Juno filed, it was the first significant ride-hailing company to file for bankruptcy. Juno said its troubles came from severe regulations and that it wants to enter into strategic partnerships with its ride-hailing competitors. So even though we have not seen any other big ride-hail companies file for bankruptcy, there were some prior, prior auto-related bankruptcies that blame the growth of the ride-share companies for their own troubles. Um, one of these was GST Auto Leather, which manufactures leather for cars, and they said that companies like Uber and Lyft diminish consumers' needs for their own cards cars. <laughs> there have also been a few taxi companies that have filed over the past few years that also blame competition with companies like Uber and Lyft. Um, and also this year, Yueting Jia, who's the CEO of Faraday Future, um, a California-based electric vehicle company, as another filer. Other than ride-hailing companies, there was a meal kit company that filed this year, Munchery, which is based in the Bay Area and says it filed because of the popularity of other meal kit startups. Also blaming competition from another modern company, Peloton, was the filing of Mad Dog Athletics, whose co-founder has been described as the guru of spinning. You also zoomed in on consumer staples in your review of bankruptcy filings. Those were up last year from prior years. Uh, has that continued into the new year? What were the main developments there? Consumer staples cases remained elevated in 2019, totaling two more cases than the sector did in 2018, when much of the consumer staples activity was in the food production and distribution space. However, 2019 included fewer farms and more distributors, processors, and packers of food, including large filings from Dean Foods, Bumblebee, CTI, and Norpac Foods. Beef and dairy distributors in particular were hurting in 2019, with Dean Foods lamenting that while milk remains a household item in the U.S., people are simply drinking less of it, citing a 2% year-over-year drop in demand over the past 10 years and re referencing the proliferation of cow's milk alternatives like soy, almond, and oat milks. Evidence of struggle in the dairy industry has continued into 2020 with the filing of Borden Dairy in the first week of the new year, less than two months after Dean's filing. In general, food distributors blamed adverse shifts in consumer preferences, including toward private label food products, rising freight costs due to driver shortages, a downturn in the dairy market, increased labor and food costs. Beyond the food industry, there were consumer staples filings in the beauty and personal care product spaces, including High Ridge, which owns the Reach and Dr. Fresh personal dental hygiene products brands and the Zest soap brand, among others. And the customers of Acosta, which provides sales and marketing services to retailers, are mostly consumer staples products retailers. I was interested to read in the report that uh, politics factored into some of the bankruptcies. Uh, can you say more about that? There were a few cases that we tracked that pointed to the 
Trump administration's tariffs. Companies blaming tariffs against China range from dairy farm, country morning farms, EP Technology, which is a wholesaler of video surveillance and other IT products, and also consumer electronics wholesaler Tatung Company of America. Dura Automotive also blamed the tariffs as one of the things impacting its marketing efforts. Fleetwood, which is a retail store furniture, also blazed based its Chapter 11 filing partly on supply chain issues due to the tariffs on China. Bayou Steel shut down a facility in Louisiana, and local news there reported that that was due to the trade war with China. Interesting. Uh, let's move to another industry that you that the First Day team analyzes in the annual review, which is restaurants. There were 13 restaurant cases filed in 2019, and those were from owners, operators, franchisors, and franchisees. We counted up the restaurant locations involved, and they totaled more than 760. Almost 80% of these companies filed to potentially pursue a sale. Like food distributors, restaurant filers cited increased costs along with reduced guest traffic, increased competition from fast casual restaurants, and food delivery services. The last restaurant to file in the year, Granite City Food and Brewery, pointed to increased competition in the casual dining sector, impacting operating performance and margins. Granite City also said that in addition to longstanding casual dining chains with somewhat similar offerings, um, noting Applebee's, Ruby Tuesdays, Houlihan's, Outback Steakhouse, Granite has also had to compete with what it referred to as emergent and inexpensive fast casual outlets like Chipotle and Panera. Granite was also hurt by its reliance on shopping malls. There were also a bunch of restaurant franchisee filers, some with national franchisers such as Tim Hortons, Captain D's, Checkers, Nukes, Yogli Mowgli, McDonald's, and Rockin' Brews. These franchisees had different reasons for filing, but at least two related to issues with their franchisers, and those were with Tim Hortons and Rockin' Brews. So what reasons did the companies cite for these bankruptcies? Um, Are we looking at headwinds in the industry more broadly, or really more specific troubles? The overarching themes including or included competition, reduced guest traffic, labor cost increases, changes in consumer preferences, and also an increase in third-party delivery. These general restaurant industry challenges were cited by companies like Houlihan's, Granite City, Perkins and Marie Calendars, and Pacific Coast-based Restaurant Unlimited. Highlighting the labor issues, Restaurant Unlimited blamed progressive wage laws, including minimum wage hikes of 35% in Portland, Oregon, and 36, and sorry, and 69% in Seattle. Some more insular reasons were cited by Agu Plus and the owner of the Palm Restaurant brand, both because of prepetition litigation. And were these restaurant debtors seeking to sell their assets in Chapter 11? There were several of the chains that filed intending to sell assets. Two of the companies, Houlihan's and Restaurants Unlimited, sold to Landry's, which was the stalking horse in both cases. Landry's also owned several restaurant chains and bought Joe's Crab Shack out of its own Chapter 11 in 2017. Kona Grill sold its assets to a stalking horse also, but in that case, it was Williston Holding Company. Perkins and Marie Calendars also sold its assets, but in parts, some to stalking horses as well as an overbidder. Uh, Ian, going back to you, the annual review also discussed Chapter 11s commenced by healthcare companies. Uh, Those have risen for two straight years, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. After jumping more than 50% year over year from 2017 to 2018, healthcare sector filings increased another 32% from 2018 to 2019. This was driven largely by 
largely by a triple-digit percentage growth in pharmaceuticals filings and a significant increase in healthcare facility operators, especially operators of nursing homes, continuing care retirement communities, and rural hospitals. 2019 was a particularly busy year for healthcare Chapter 11s involving more than $100 million in liabilities, which have increased steadily every year since 2016, at an average increase of 72% per year. In 2019, nearly half of these larger filings with respect to liabilities were pharmaceuticals cases. The bulk of 2019's pharmaceutical filers pinned their suboptimal financial positions on difficulties in successfully commercializing their drugs or litigation. Hospital operators, especially rural and critical access hospitals, blame falling Medicaid and Medicare reimbursements, large uninsured patient populations, and competition from larger metropolitan healthcare networks, and nursing home owners blaming low occupancy and revenue and, especially in Texas, a surplus of continuing care retirement communities. On that Texas note, Texas has accounted for a disproportionately large share of healthcare facility operator Chapter 11s relative to its population size. Another topic that the first day team delved into in the annual review was prepackaged cases, prepacks. Jessica, what did you find was the frequency of these cases and where did most of them file? We counted up 52 prepackaged or pre-negotiated cases this year, and out of those, 23 filed in Delaware. Uh, some of the prepacks were also very fast, with two plans confirmed within about a day after the petition date. Judge Robert Drain of the Southern District of New York presided over both of these cases, which were Full Beauty and SunGuard. Two Delaware prepacks were also very quick. Arsenal Energy confirmed its plan in Delaware about a week into the case, and Diesel was confirmed about five weeks after its petition date and used Full Beauty and Arsenal as precedent. The First Day database also tracks dip financing trends. Uh, what did you see in terms of dip financing in 2019? Approximately 40% of 2019's Chapter 11 filers submitted requests for dip financing as part of their First Day briefings, with the consumer discretionary, energy, and healthcare sectors representing over 60% of those. The highest interest rate included in the year's DIP documents was 20%, coming from the DIP motions of both Remnant Oil and Generation Next franchise food brands. The biggest case with respect to reported liabilities in first day history, PG&E, is also the biggest case with respect to requested DIP financing, with the debtors requesting $5.5 billion in total DIP financing, larger than all of the DIP financings requested in the consumer discretionary, communication services, healthcare, industrials, information technology, materials, and real estate sectors combined. The next closest sector to utilities with respect to the aggregate level of dip financing requests is the energy sector, which accounted for $4.3 billion of dip financing requests across 32 cases. On a sector basis, the highest interest rates came from the technology sector, averaging 11.3% overall, followed by the energy sector at 8.6% and consumer staples at 8.3%. Users of the First Day database uh, that uh, is maintained by the First Day team can also take a look and track 363 sales. Uh, surveying 2019, which industries had the most companies conducting sale processes in Chapter 11? The consumer discretionary industry had the most with about a quarter, and the next biggest was healthcare with 20%, followed by 15% from energy companies and then 11% from the consumer staples industry. For the healthcare cases, all but one of the pharmaceutical companies pursued sales, and 63% of the nursing homes and retirement communities did. Great. And let's end today uh, with a question about the courts and venue. 
Where were companies filing for Chapter 11 in 2019? For the third consecutive year, the percentage of Chapter 11s filed outside of the top three court districts, which are Delaware, Southern District of New York, and the Southern District of Texas, has decreased slightly, starting from 66% in 2017 to 62% in 2019. The states of Delaware, New York, and Texas accounted for about 80% of the total number of Chapter 11s with 100 million or more in liabilities. The biggest development with respect to bankruptcy venues in 2019 was a surge in billion-dollar energy filings hosted in the Southern District of Texas. In 2016, the busiest year for energy sector filings, Delaware edged out the Southern District of Texas for the most billion-dollar energy filings, 9 to 7. In 2019, however, Texas Southern dominated with $10 billion billion energy cases to Delaware's one. For cases of all liability ranges, the most trafficked bankruptcy court districts, Delaware, the Southern District of New York, and the Southern District of Texas, these fluctuations were much softer than those specifically focusing on the billion-dollar cases. Well, thank you so much, Jessica and Ian, for joining us today to talk about the Chapter 11 filing activity that you saw in 2019. The First Day Team's 2019 Year in Review story was released this week, and we really encourage subscribers to check it out. It describes all of the stats and trends that Jessica and Ian discussed today and more. The report also features some beautiful graphs and images summarizing all of that data, which really brings it all to life. Thanks, team. And now, and thank you for tuning in to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been the Week in Reorg. I'm Andrew Sun.